Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Whisper of Eternity. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March the 5th, 2017, the first Sunday in Lent. <clears throat> Last December, a Journey with Jesus reader emailed me with a movie suggestion Frank said that he thought I would like the British film Still Life from the year 2013. It's still available on Amazon Streaming, and I highly recommend it. After the credits rolled, I thought to myself, come this March, I have the perfect film to present at our church's Lenten Faith and Film series. And so, here we are at Lent. Uberto Pasolini wrote and directed this poignant story about a low-level functionary in the British bureaucracy of South London. His name is John May. May is a caseworker whose job is to find the next of kin for people who have died alone. And finding the next of kin for people who have died lonely and alone turns out to be quite a challenge. That's a strange job you've got, all those people, says one person, to which May responds, I love my work. And in fact, he does. He conducts his bureaucratic responsibilities with an obsessive compulsive dedication to detail, and more important, an authentic sense of the dignity of every human life and death, no matter how obscure or alone. Most surviving family members refuse assistance, as May's bureaucratic form puts it. They want nothing to do with their dead relative when May calls them. No, they don't want any of the personal effects that May lovingly collected from their apartment. No, they won't attend the funeral. No, they won't help to pay for the burial. And no, there's no one else to call. So, when those who died lonely and alone are abandoned, even after death, May organizes their funerals. He writes their eulogies based upon what he can discover about them, attends their burials, and then spreads their ashes. He's the only person present in these sacred moments, except for the lone priest or the grave diggers. May himself is socially isolated. He lives alone, and for supper he plops a tin of tuna onto a plate. But then, <clears throat> in an incredibly powerful scene, after dinner he pulls out a scrapbook of photos that he's made of those on whom he's bestowed such dignity. A family portrait, a driver's license, a worker ID card, or perhaps a newspaper clipping. Slowly and tenderly, he contemplates the lives lived that are now gone. It takes your breath away. This being a bureaucracy, May's job is, as his boss puts it, amalgamated. And so he's soon to be out of work. But not before he begs to finish one last case pertaining to Billy Stoke. 
Billy was the quintessential loner and alcoholic. In fact, he lived in the apartment across from May, even though he never met the man. And as he did with so many others, May stitches together Billy's lost story, reconnects his estranged daughter and friends, and plans his funeral. But then both romance and tragedy strike. I won't spoil the movie, but the last moments of this story that take place in a cemetery are some of the most powerful images that I've ever seen in any movie. At my church this Wednesday, the priest will smear ashes on my forehead to remind me of my own mortality. As he does so, he'll recite God's words to Adam in Genesis 3.19, For dust you are, and to dust you will return. This somber truth stands in stark contrast to the archetypal lie that Satan told Eve in Genesis 3.4, and the denial that flourishes down to our own day. Surely you will not die. In the Bible, 40 is a number of sacred significance. The Genesis flood lasted 40 days and 40 nights. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. In the reading for last week, Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai. Jonah preached to Nineveh for 40 days. And in the gospel this week, Jesus spent 40 days in the desert fasting praying and battling the, de the devil. And so, since about the 4th century, Christians have set aside the 40 weekdays before Easter as a time for repentance, reflection, and self-examination. We consider the Lenten wisdom to remember death, memento mori. We remember death in order to affirm life. Meditating on mortality helps me to live more fully in the present. <clears throat> At Lent this year, I'm reminded of a favorite poem by Jane Kenyon. It's called Otherwise. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day, I know, it will be otherwise. This spare poem begins with gratitude for the simplest gifts of everyday life. Food, work, sleep, marriage, and even walking the family dog. It ends with an abrupt confession that these joys won't last forever. Indeed, Kenyon herself died of leukemia 
<clears throat> at the age of 47. I love Lent. It reminds me that I don't need to be stuck in old ways of thinking and acting. Renewal is possible. I can wipe the mud off my glasses, hit the reset button. I don't need to wait for old age to magically impart a new perspective on what matters most and why. In a culture that glorifies excess and indulgence, hubris and bravado, Wednesday's ashes signify an outrageously countercultural act of humility. Lent is the most brutally realistic liturgical season of the year. It's a time when we tell the truth about ourselves, our brokenness, our mortality, and nevertheless trust in God's redemptive love. I love the German title for the film Still Life. I happen to notice that it's called Mr. May und das Flüstern der Ewigkeit. That is, Mr. May and the Whisper of Eternity. And that's exactly what Lent offers us when we listen to the stories all around us about the goodness of life and the certainty of death. The Whisper of Eternity. <clears throat> For books this week, I review a novel by Ian McEwan. It's called Nutshell. New York, Doubleday, 2016. This book is 197 pages long. In this, his 17th novel, the English writer Ian McEwan retells the story of Shakespeare's Hamlet, although he takes a creative gamble with a most unusual twist. The narrator of the story is a third trimester fetus who, in the first two sentences of the book, says, So here I am, upside down in a woman, arms patiently crossed, waiting, waiting, and wondering who I'm in, what I'm in for. Well, he's in his mother, Trudy, who has left his father, John, and who has taken as her lover his uncle, Claude. And what he's in for is at one level a very simple and common story, as old as human history. But this being Hamlet in the hands of McEwen, he's also in for a dark tale of the complexity of the human heart with all its jealousy, deceit, stupidity, guilt, and regret. John Cairncross is a publisher and a wannabe poet. He's in debt, overweight, and separated from Trudy so that they can, quote, each find the time and space to grow and reconnect. For her part, Trudy has expelled John from his childhood Georgian mansion, which is in fact a dilapidated wreck of filth and squalor, but nonetheless still worth seven million pounds. She's taken up residence there with her lover Claude, the younger brother of John, 
a property developer, and as McEwen puts it, a dull-brained yokel. And so the fetus narrator summarizes his situation. So, my mother has preferred my father's brother, cheated her husband, ruined her son. My uncle has stolen his brother's wife, deceived his nephew's father, grossly insulted his sister-in-law's son. And my father, by nature, is defenseless, as I am by circumstance. Pressed against Trudy's stomach day and night, he's witness to conspirators in a vile enterprise. He hears pillow talk of deadly intent and plans for a dreadful event. When four police show up at their doorstep on the last page of the book, Claude and Trudy contemplate all that has happened, and I quote, It's over. It's not a good end. It was never going to be. For books, a new novel by the English writer Ian McEwen. It's called Nutshell, from the year 2016. For movies this week, I review a television episode called Playtest, from the year 2016. <clears throat> Playtest is episode two in season three of the British television series called Black Mirror that debuted back in 2011 and that was later made available on Netflix. This episode, Playtest, imagines a terrifying version of our modern obsession with video gaming. An American named Cooper is finishing up a backpacking trip around the world in London when his credit cards are frozen and he badly needs some quick cash. He meets a girl named Sonia on Tinder who helps him sign up as a tester for a virtual reality game. That work requires a quote-unquote small medical procedure in which they upload a neural net package called the mushroom at the base of his neck, and thus begins the horror. Is it real or virtual? And what a bitter irony that the purpose of his globe-trotting was to quote-unquote find himself and make some memories. Playtest epitomizes the original vision of the whole series, Black Mirror. If technology is a drug, explains the creator, Charlie Brooker, and it does feel like a drug, then what precisely are the side effects? This area between delight and discomfort is where Black Mirror is set. The Black Mirror of the title is the one you'll find on every wall, on every desk, in the palm of every hand the cold, shiny screen of a TV, a monitor, a smartphone. The fictional satires have drawn comparison to the Twilight Zone with their ominous explorations of our techno-paranoia. To date, there have been 13 episodes, each one of which is about 45 to 90 minutes long.
Once again, the title, Playtest, Episode 2 in Season 3 of the British television series, Black Mirror. And for Ash Wednesday and the first Sunday in Lent, we've posted the poem Marked by Ashes by Walter Brueggemann. Ruler of the day, guarantor of the night, this day a gift from you. This day, like none other you have ever given or we have ever received. This Wednesday dazzles us with gift and newness and possibility. This Wednesday also burdens us with the tasks of the day, for we are already halfway home, halfway back to committees and memos, halfway back to calls and appointments, halfway on to next Sunday, halfway back, half frazzled, half expectant, half turned toward you, half rather not. This Wednesday is a long way from Ash Wednesday, but all our Wednesdays are marked by ashes. We begin this day with that taste of ash in our mouth, of failed hope and broken promises, of forgotten children and frightened women. We ourselves are ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We can taste our mortality as we roll the ashes around on our tongues. We are able to ponder our ashness with some confidence, only because our every Wednesday of ashes anticipates your Easter victory over that dry, flaky taste of death. On this Wednesday, we submit our ashen way to you, you Easter parade of newness. Before the sun sets, take our Wednesday and Easter us. Easter us to joy and energy and courage and freedom. Easter us that we may be fearless for your truth. Come here in Easter, our Wednesday, with mercy and justice and peace and generosity. We pray as we wait for the risen one who comes soon. Ash Wednesday, Marked by Ashes by Walter Brueggemann. And thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March the 5th, 2017. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.